through five. Surprised Hunter kept that volume quiet. That's like his favorite song. Um, so that's a song that was written out of a, a sermon series that um, was given on Romans chapter eight. And this uh, song written um, really, and it, it's probably not a lot of your style. That's all right. Um, I can jam out to some rap every now and then. But uh, the concept is that we would just make war on our sinful flesh. And we're just going to jump right into a big idea today. Uh, I want you to just kind of grab this big idea with me. Uh, it is until you believe that life is war that the stakes are your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity. That's not something that I made up. That's from a guy named John Piper who is a preacher. And I want to tell you that John Piper uh, had three different messages um, as he was going through the entire book of Romans. He spent three weeks on Romans 8. And uh, in those three weeks, I believe that John Piper received uh, just an incredible gifted message on Romans 8. So we take this name, Make War, as a series that um, has been quite popular in Christian culture. It's a series we've done in our youth ministry and something that goes right along with Romans chapter 8. So Scott has laid theological groundwork for you for the first two weeks of Romans chapter 8. Now I come in and continuing part 3, Romans chapter 8, and I'll be doing some life application. So basically, what do we when we look at Romans 8, when we look at this life through God's Spirit, how do we apply that to our lives? That's where we're digging in today. And our big idea, our big idea is this. Until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity. Well, I was thinking of a great illustration to kind of take this big idea and bring it into my life, and I asked a number of my friends this week in preparation. I said, here's what I want. Do you have like a real deal story that that's what happened? They're like, no, but it'd be great if I did. So I decided that I couldn't come up with something that was of my own life, but I would tell part of my own life story, let you know where the exaggeration would happen, and maybe you can follow along with me. So here's what happens in my life. When I was growing up, I built clubhouses. Um, those were both in the, like on the ground level. Um, I actually tried to dig down, um, thought I was going to go down and have a whole cavern, uh, made it about four feet deep. Um, so the clubhouse at least had a hole. Um, and then we also built them up in trees. So we had tree houses. Me and my buddies did that all the time. We loved to do it. I don't know if you all uh, grow up and you remember building clubhouses. It's something that I did. I loved it. So I remember this one clubhouse in particular. We spent quite a bit of time on it. It was in the woods. It started out on the ground level. We, like, built walls. Um, we kind of had seats inside. There was a door that was hinged um, with rope and uh, that you could kind of open it up. It was a sweet deal. We, we were about to work on the second story of this uh, clubhouse, in fact, because we thought that would be a good idea, and I don't know if it would have worked or not. I never got to find out, you know, why. 
someone figured out where my clubhouse was. And if you're a clubhouse builder, you know you have to keep these things secret. Because if people find out where they are, they might get jealous and they might tear it down. So a rival gang in the neighborhood, at least I think so, must have come through and tore down the clubhouse from me and my friends. Here's the part where my story stretches. I wish that we had a name. We weren't that creative. I didn't have a name for my club. Uh, we actually didn't have an official club. We were just friends and we hung out. And, I, and So I wish we had one. And then if we had a name, we would have had somebody standing guard at the clubhouse. Because then you would have had to have something secret to come in, you know. And it would have been a boys-only club, of course, because girls are not allowed in clubhouses. And so it would have been a boys... It would, been a boys only thing and uh, all of my friends would have been in there well what happens and what can make us real frustrated is that when you do that and you get all tight with your clubhouse and then you figure out suddenly somebody told their sister somebody told their sister where it's at now that wasn't happened i didn't peep my sisters did not know but the clubhouse disappeared it might have been girls it might have not been but i want you to know that had i found out that one of those boys would have peeped about where that was we couldn't have been friends anymore and maybe you can relate to that you have a club or you have an organization and you take it very seriously you wear your patch you do your knock you do the whole deal and somebody doesn't take it seriously enough Somebody squeals to the sister. Somebody squeaks. Somebody tells. Somebody forgets the knock. Somebody forgets when they are supposed to be taking it seriously. Well, the transition, of course, is that how do you and I feel when someone's supposed to be taking it seriously and they don't? How do we feel in those moments? Think about that. How do you feel when the professional athlete that's getting paid a lot of money to take the game seriously doesn't run his routes if the ball's not coming to him. How do you feel if they don't show up for practice? How do you feel when somebody's supposed to take something seriously but don't? How do you feel as you're on a sports team and you're doing the push-ups or sit-ups and you've counted out the ones that you're supposed to do and you realize that your friend's doing girl push-ups? And girl push-ups are the ones where you don't go on your feet, it's with your knees. I did those. Um, <laughs> Probably all that I could do right now would be curl push-ups. Um, but you, you look at that and you say, that's not fair, that's not right, you're not taking this seriously, you're not going to... I think about all those ways and how I feel and how maybe you feel in those moments and it makes us frustrated, makes us feel a little mad, uh, certainly makes us feel sort of cheated. The Bible has a word for those Christians who would not take their faith Seriously, the word in the Bible is called lukewarm. Now, lukewarm is just something that's not hot and it's not cold. It's just lukewarm. It's what the air is doing right now in this building. The air is lukewarm and it's just dribbling out of those vents. So um, you're going to really feel um, probably hot. You don't feel lukewarm. But lukewarm is what the Bible uses uh, for uh, someone who doesn't take the call to Christ seriously. And we know that in Scripture that God does what with lukewarm Christians? Spits them out of his mouth. God has no taste for that. In fact, he despises the lukewarm attitude. He despises the lukewarm Christian. And likewise, I despise the lukewarm clubhouse member. I despise the person who doesn't take it seriously. And I want you to know that today, until you believe that life is war, and that the stakes are your soul. 
you will probably just play at Christianity. In John Piper's exposition through chapter 8, he was gifted with an incredible message. And I want to tell you up front that uh, most of the good ideas come from John Piper. I'm going to fill it in with some stuff I've thought about, but I don't want to take credit for something God's gifted him with. And um, and so certainly much of our thoughts today, the concept of make war, we're going to watch a video at the end. You're going to hear John Piper and kind of some of the stuff out of his sermons. But this is so good, so good that it would do us right to hear it, but not just hear it from my words, but from God. So I'm going to pray for that right now. God, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would cut and into the heart that I can't reach as a human being, but where your Spirit can dwell. So God, I pray that you would do that, not because of some clever word that I or John Piper have come up with, but a word that comes right from your mouth. So deliver it to our hearts this morning. Amen. I want to ask you something. If we were to take a survey and or to poll you all in here and say, do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe that Satan is real? If we, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if we did, and I would compare it to this question, do you believe that God is real? There would be, if you follow statistics, a a difference between those who believe God and believe Satan. And likewise, there is a difference in the polls that ask the common uh, American culture, do you believe in heaven? Yes, the majority say yes. Do you believe in, excuse me, do you believe in hell? Nearly half of those who say yes to heaven say yes to hell. And likewise, many people find it easier to believe in God than they do in Satan. And so I ask you this morning to consider to yourself, do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe in the devil? Do you believe that there's a real place called hell? Because many people do not. Many people do not believe that. In fact, there are some books that have just kind of flooded our uh, our, uh, culture lately. There are two of them. One of them is... um, Called, uh, by a guy named Rob Bell, and it's called uh, Love Wins. And the premise of this book is that um, love wins, that uh, an eternal hell just might not exist. Uh, Francis Chan said, I don't find that in my Bible. And Francis Chan kind of writes a response back in his book called Erasing Hell. Two books that are great reads. Rob Bell asks questions. He's a thinker. He loves to ask questions. So he asks more questions than he pr- provides answers. Uh, Francis says, I want to look into Scripture and I want to see what it has to say. And if you're going to read those books, read them back to back. Great reads back to back. Read Love Wins first and Erasing Hell second. Good reads about hell. But what you'll find is that it hit home in a culture today that does not like to believe in hell, does not like to believe in the devil. And I want you to know that the Bible talks a lot about Satan. The Bible talks a lot about an enemy that we have. You cannot read the Bible without encountering Satan, without encountering demons, or spiritual forces of evil. There is a spiritual reality that is happening, and it's mysterious, and there is a lot of questions to it, but we cannot pretend like it's not there. In fact, I would suggest two things happen. On the one hand, because there's so much mystery and intrigue around the spiritual forces of evil, sometimes the tendency can be for us to dive too deep into that. We could find ourselves caught up using Ouija boards, studying witchcraft, and being involved in the occult. And that's dangerous. 
And I would say that in making spiritual uh, demons and spiritual warfare a reality, making Satan a reality, does not mean that we should dive into the occult or dive into witchcraft. Because when we start to get into, well, I will communicate with these demons, and we start to get into that level, then that's going to start distracting us from core salvation issues. We need to focus on things that the Bible is very clear about. And so the, the other hand would be, the second thing that, um, that we would do is, is that we would avoid the issue altogether. Is we could dive in or we could avoid the issue altogether. And so because there's a lot of mystery surrounding it, because it's not something that we see, because it's something that's easily, easy to ignore, then we can easily get into this place where we ignore it. Or maybe you've thought about it for five seconds and you got scared and you decided, no, no more of that. Um, so we ignore spiritual forces of evil. But if it's in Scripture, and it is, and the Bible talks about it, and it does, then we need to be wise and not ignore it. We can't, on the one hand, dive into the occult and witchcraft, and yet, on the other hand, we can't think about daisies and rainbows all the time. We have to have a reality that there's a spiritual warfare going on all around us. I want to show you a a couple scriptures. The first in Revelation 12. We're just going to look at verse 7 through 9. This is about Satan. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The reality is this. Satan and his crew oppose God, and they're thrown out of heaven. I don't know when or how that happens, or really even really much what it looks like, other than the words on the page. And there's a lot of thinking that can be gone into, how did that happen? When did that happen? Has it yet happened? Did it already happen? There's a lot of good thinking about that. And I've got some stuff in my notes. It's just in green instead of black text, which means don't talk about that, Tommy. But you can talk to me about that. And I would be glad to share you some other scriptures I found and say, hey, I'm interested in that. What what did you find? Um, And, you know, we we can chat about that a little bit. But here's what I want you to grab. I don't want you to get lost in, oh, that's a cool story. Um, I I want you to understand this core concept, that Satan is real. He opposes God and is an enemy to all who would come to God. We know for sure that Satan rebels against God, that he was given authority on earth and is the enemy of God and God's people. But we also know for sure in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that he will be defeated in the end. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, I'll just tell you right now, if you told me there's a lion prowling around in the choir area, I'm not going to be comfortable. I'm, not, I'm going to be disturbed. I'm going to be like looking around. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be watchful. Do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe that he is out for your soul? Second thing I want you to grab onto, the enemy is real, that's one. The second thing is that the battle is raging, that's the second. 
Maybe you want to write those down because they're thoughts I want you to grab. But the enemy is real and the battle is raging. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is a battle that is raging, and it is going on, and the stakes are your soul. It's rather strange to think that there's a battle raging. It's rather strange to think about it because I don't like walk out my door and say, oh, staying in today, there's a really bad battle going on. Um, I don't see it. I'm not confronted with it at the grocery store. I'm not, I don't see the explosions. I don't, I'm not confronted with it, and so it's easy for me to ignore it because it's hard for me to see. So we often don't take this battle seriously because it's not something that we can visibly see. But when it is in Scripture, we cannot ignore it. In fact, um, we would be wise to listen carefully to the the passage about being alert for our adversary is roaming around and to let that trigger our minds towards something like a wartime mindset. In the second sermon John Piper gives on Romans 8, he quotes from a guy named Ed Welch, and Ed is preparing for a book called A Banquet in the Grave. And this is what um, Ed writes. There is a mean streak to authentic Self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war which sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of the leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. A wartime mindset changes us. Just saw John Hicks nodding. John's a veteran. A wartime mindset changes us. It makes you think different. It makes you act differently. And when we understand that the battle is real and waging around us and that the stakes are our very souls, we have to get that through our head because the tactic that the enemy is going to use is to lull us to sleep into a peacetime mindset. You see, his greatest tactic would be for us to believe that things are okay, for us to be at peace. And you know what? The truth about us as humans, we don't like conflict. I don't like to be in conflict with any of you. If we're in conflict, I want to resolve it right away. It bugs me. We want to to deal with that. So we don't like it. It's tension. We hate it. And so we, we seek peace. We seek to bring peace back into our lives, stability back. We don't like the battle. But the reality that can can sometimes, in the midst of our longing for peace, the reality is that we can get comfortable 
with sin. In our longing for peace, we learn to get very comfortable with sin. Our hearts harden. We have been lulled to sleep. And the peacetime mindset that the enemy brings about is dangerous. Some of us have been living in a peacetime mindset every single day of our lives. Some of us have been living as if peace is going on for years. The reality is that some of us are way too apathetic toward sin. Some of us are so um, hardened in our hearts against sin that we're completely comfortable with it in our lives. We can no longer be comfortable with the enemy of God lurking in our hearts. We can't be okay with sin in our life. We can't be comfortable or at peace with sin. It's time to make war. It's time to get violent. Because a wartime mindset is the only possible attitude toward out-of-control self-control. We have to declare war on sin. But I need to clear something up. When we declare war on sin, this is not a violence toward others. This is not, in fact, a war against others. This is violence and war against my own sin. This is a war against my flesh, your flesh. This is your war against the sin in your life. Not the sin of those around us. Listen to Jesus' answer in Matthew 18 as he talks about what we should be violent against. Verse 7 through 9. Woe to the world for the temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So question. Do you want to enter life? If the answer is yes, you must take it violently. Does your hand or your foot cause you to sin? Cut it off. Now, I've struggled with this passage. I have. For years, I read this passage and I think, well, I don't see people with no legs. And I certainly don't see people with any eyes. I don't see a lot of blind people walking around. I struggle with this passage. And so you know what I did? Ignored it. Because it was too hard for me to make sense of. I didn't want to take it literally, so I ignored it. You know what I'm learning? That what Jesus' message is here is really a call for us to make war on sin. This is a picture 
of the most radical assault on sin that we could really imagine. Jesus is saying, I'm serious. I want you to have a radical assault on sin. Not the sins of others, on our sins. And so as I continue to grow in my faith, I realize if there's a situation that's resulting in me falling into sin, I'm going to cut off that situation. If there's something that's causing me to say the wrong things, I need to shut my mouth. If there's someone in my life who's causing and tempting me to sin, I need to cut that person out of my life. I need to be wise and say it is better for me to make war on this sin because I will then enter life. This is a radical picture of an assault on sin. Not the sins of others, but our sins. This battle is raging right now. A spiritual battle for your very soul. And we can get so caught up in seeing the battle in other people. It's so easy for us to identify it in others. We're great at that. In fact, uh, many of us uh, will go online and we'll sign this petition maybe to um, protect Christian values in the political arena. Some of us will go and we'll, we'll protest movies because of too much horror or too much language or too much sex, and then we'll post about it on Facebook so everybody else knows that we're protesting the movie. We'll stare down a teenager who's cursing. We'll give him a nasty eye. In Dollywood, we'll be in line, and somebody's cut in line. You know, the little kid is trying to get to the front. And sometimes we'll, we'll glare at them or we'll talk real loudly so they can hear. Some of us will grab them. We're really good at crying out publicly when crimes are committed against others. We'll call for someone else to be put in jail or even put to death. We weep over crimes against children that we see often in our news. You know what? We'll even shed a tear for that commercial about crimes against animals. You know the one with the Sarah McLaughlin music? Some of us will tear up about that. I want to tell you, some of you have shed more tears for animal cruelty than your own sin. And the call today has nothing to do with the sin of others. Nothing to do with the sin of others. But your own sin. This is not a war against other sins. This is not a call to protest. This is not a call for you to go out and look and think about how great you are in comparison to others. You know what? Your heart's just hard because there's sin in yours. Declare war against the sinful flesh inside of you. Our own flesh is at war against the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This is a battle between the Spirit and and the flesh. And Scott has laid out the theological groundwork for life by the Spirit. 
You know, just a few verses later in Galatians. It's the passage of the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 22 it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a violent word, crucified. It's a violent thought. Our flesh must be killed. There's no other way to say this. And when you lay on top of that, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you want to enter life? Do you want to live as God has intended for you to live life to the full? Then get violent. Get a wartime mindset. Stop making peace with ears and eyes and tongues that betray you. Stop making peace with a gossiping mouth. Stop making peace with ears that are listening to evil. Stop making peace with eyes that are watching stuff on television that you should not be seeing. Make war on your sin. Don't turn off the TV and protest the cable company. Make war on your sin. Your sinful nature. Put to death. Stop going over and becoming an instrument for the devil. Put to death the fleshly deeds of your body. Let me pray. God, we cannot, by some strength that we would want to muster up within us, we cannot do this on our own. We lack the strength. We lack the ability. We lack the endurance. But God, we don't have to have it because you promise your Holy Spirit within us. You promise that the work is done through Christ. The battle is already won. We see it in Revelation. Our enemy is defeated. But God, forgive us for being apathetic toward our sin. Forgive us for the ways that we have ignored our sinful flesh. Forgive us for being lulled to sleep into a peacetime mentality. And God, Stir up within us a wartime mindset, a righteous anger against our own sin. That we would have no place for sin in our lives because we are bearing fruit of your spirit. Empower us. We pray through Christ. Amen.